Hi there, and welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. Today I have a very special guest. I know I always say that, but uh, Scott Balserzak and I uh, go kind of way back. Um, when I started off in grad school, I was a member of this blog called Dr. Mabuza's Kaleidoscope, and there were a group of scholars uh, at that blog at the time. It was kind of novel to have a blog who would kind of, you know... Um, we had this kind of collective commune of, of different blog posts about special effects and movie reviews and all kinds of stuff, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So I'm really happy to bring him on to talk about his new book, Beyond Methods, Stella Adler and the Male Actor. Before I get to the interview, let me uh, read off his bio. Scott Balserzak is Associate Professor of Film and Media in the Department of English at Northern Illinois University. He's the author of Buffoon Men classic Hollywood comedians and queered masculinity from Wayne State University Press in 2013. He's the co-editor of Cinephilia in the Age of Digital Reproduction, Film Pleasure, and Digital Culture, Volumes 1 and 2. Today he's here to talk to me about Beyond Methods, Stella Adler, and the Male Actor, which was published by Wayne State uh, just last June in 2018. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. I'm going to start with a very general question that I ask most of the guests to kind of get the ball rolling, which is, uh, what what got you into film? Yeah, it's that's always a good question. Uh, I I remember a few a few Christmases ago, I was back home and watching. You know, you get like nostalgic when you go home for the holidays, and I was watching a home video, and the camcorder just went into my room. And it was just like I was like 15 and there were just walls of VHS tapes and movie posters and and watching it. I just thought, well, of course, I was going to become a film scholar. Like it just made so much sense. But, you know, at the time, I didn't even think of that as a job or, you know, any sort of reasonable life goal. Um, I was I was a quiet kid. I was uh, a Certainly didn't have a lot of friends. And I was always interested in media from a different era. You know, I, I remember trying to talk to kids in school that were into horror movies, and they were talking about slasher movies, and I'm talking about universal horror movies from sure. the 30s, and it never quite fit. Um, also, I was realizing a little while back, I was very performer-focused even back then, like, and that's where my research went. Like, Even when I was interested in horror movies, it was very oh, a Boris Karloff movie, a Bela Lugosi movie. Hmm. I got really I got really into um, uh, classic Hollywood comedians, which were like was my first book. So if I start psychoanalyzing myself, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, it, it were these performers that were, were playing sympathetic monsters or buffoons. Like I didn't go gravitate towards these idealized versions or depictions of masculinity at all. So, but it was, uh, it was, long obsession you know it was and it wasn't just like anybody that age or was into film I you know I got into Hitchcock at some point I got into certain directors but I never really shook the the performer base sort of thing even early on okay so when you went to college did you think you were going to start off as a film major did you do the English track because everyone's kind of trajectory has been very very different on the show and I think it's very interesting given that you know like I remember being at UCLA where you'd get some guy who was like an architecture major as an yeah. undergrad, and then all of a sudden he'd be doing these fantastic analyses of like Antonioni movies. So <laughs> is it something you fell into right away, or did you gradually find it when you discovered it was a thing, or how, how was that journey for you? It, 
I went to community college to start with and okay, I have an interest in film and I play around with my home video camera, so I'm gonna do telecommunications for two years. We were a very practical family. Like what could you do with sure. a degree right away? We were um I was the first member of my immediate family to get a college degree. So that was kind of in a way of thinking. And then my my older brother got one later. Um but then I did that for about a year and I knew that was not for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting in a class and I remember it distinctly because we were reading, it was an English class and reading Melville's Barnaby the Scrivener. I don't know if you know that short story. And it really spoke to me. It was like this old piece of the story. I shouldn't even speak to me at all. But once again, very, very odd people in that story, very odd men. Um, And I switched to English major at that moment. And one of the reasons for that was it was practicality. There was no film studies for me to do so what would be the most comparable thing except analyzing literature and and looking back i'm glad i did it 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 gave me certainly different perspectives on literature like with doing the book you know i had to dive so much into 20th century theater and movements of theater and and having a bit of background in that really helped yeah, no, I, I find that too. I remember when I started off at UCLA, again, it was this weird cohort of, you know, a lot of people from production, a lot of people from, you know, gender studies and stuff and English. And I just remember, like, we'd have these conversations where we all had these very particular blind spots because of how we came yeah. through. And it's like, even though I did English and, and literature and double majored in film studies, like, I never really got, like, a Marx class. Like, we touched that. We had, like, a week of Marx, but, like, you know, it's very superficial. So, yeah, it's kind of funny how that kind of shakes out. I, I found the years after getting your PhD and, and writing after after getting your degree is filled with trying to fill these holes that were in your education. You you feel as if your doctorate is so complete. And yeah. then you get out and go, I have no clue. Uh, now I have I now I have to write this and I have to go completely into this hall of research or a theoretical school I never had a class in or something. You know, I had to I had to school myself in so much queer theory because I just touched on it, you know, sure. in grad school. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that was just kind of starting to blossom at the time when I was coming through and it was just it, it's 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 just so strange and it's like I feel like the more I learn the less I actually know, which is this <laughs> terrifying, you know, thought. And then just like the, the other weird thing that came with the kind of grad school I realized is there were so many scholars who started their career planting their flag in a certain field and then they'd be like I never want to talk about that again like I'm so tired of talking about Alfred Hitchcock even though I wrote three books on him or I'm I'm tired of talking about this so it'd be like you'd have one of the most qualified people probably in the field to teach that but they wouldn't want to go near it because they were so sick and tired of thinking about it and I I kind of sympathized to a certain extent whenever somebody asked me to write about comics yeah, are, are, do you feel that way now? Book a bit, a little bit. I'm like, just like I'm like, oh god, I, or like yeah, you know, where somebody asked me to come talk about video essays and it's a primer again, and I'm like, oh right, I can show you how to rip <laughs> clips. Sorry, I, we can do that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so what ended up getting you into performance studies and kind of finding that very particular subfield of of film? It's, you had mentioned it was you know, already an interest, but like what class or book or what kind of got you there? It's such a under-examined area of film studies in a way. I mean, there's there's certainly important books, and I think 
I think you were mentioning we were messaging a little bit about this this talk and this interview today, but uh, I remember being an MA and doing my thesis, which it's better my MA thesis better left undiscussed. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, most it, are. <laughs> yeah, it was essentially this diatribe on theory that I would never touch again. Was um, picking up, I was writing about non-actors in films, like mm. playing themselves in movies. And I, I remember picking up um, Naramore's acting in the cinema. And that was like the first book I read that was scholarly and wasn't, about star image per se, even though acting and star image are very tied together. I mean, certain actors are, their star image is all about their performance choices. And, you know, the moment you, you talk about a Daniel Day Lewis, his star image is the acting in a sense, right? Um, but it was so much about the process of acting and uh, things from outside of film studies, because we talk about these different disciplines and there's this whole theater world <laughs> that, that, you know, actors on screen uh, are a part of and this training. And we as film scholars are usually coming from a film on film studies, or like you said, you know, you're getting a lot of people who did English degrees. So there's this whole discourse that exists in acting studies that, you know, I, we haven't touched you know, we haven't really gotten into and, and really understand. Um, so that was always interesting to me. I remember reading that in Naramore's book and his chapter, like on Brando, hmm. was really challenging to me because it was all about that sort of sense of what that means. Because in a way, I, I think, I don't know how you are, but when I talk about, oh, I was very performer-based is when I got in the film, I think a lot of people, at least initially, that's how we begin to group movies. By we, actor, we, yeah. Yeah, like, I really got into Bogart movies, or, you know, <laughs> I really got into this actor, and, and it's still such a determinant to pleasure when we think about movies or a TV show or something else, and it's in... Sometimes we just talk about it in very mysterious terms. They have this real uh, or it appeal or, or something like that. So starting just to dive into that was interesting to me. So I, I played around with a, a little bit as an MA. And then even when I was doing, you know, I, I did my dissertation on film comedians. And that wasn't like acting and performance as much, but it was a bit of it there. But I was always dabbling a little bit in it. Like I wrote on Bertolt Brecht and Peter Lorre for a class and that became a published article. And even like my digital study stuff I did was uh, Andy Serkis and Mo Capture, sure. right? Yeah. So there was always like bleeding into it. So that interest was there. No, that's great. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of like that. Aside from your book, I, I hadn't read Nairmore. It's funny because my wife, the Academy Film Library was giving away like a bunch of like I think they had doubles of books, so she brought that book home like at the last giveaway, like and it was like last mm -hmm. summer, and I was like, I finally get to read this book. It's been on like <laughs> the list of like things I should read for a long time. But aside from yours, I think the only one I've read that kind of touches on it, aside from the star image texts, are like Henry Jenkins' book on uh, silent comedy or not silent uh, vaudeville comedy. Where yeah, there is very much. Nuts, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a great book, but yeah, so much of it is based on that more theatrical um, tradition in terms of the literature review, from what I remember. So, well, and it, oh, go it's and it, it are so much of it, you know, when it's so much of cross pollination between theater and film 
you know, that history's been touched upon a bit. We think about other media so much with it, certainly with, like, I teach a literature and film class here, like, regularly. It's part of our program where I teach. But the actual history of film is so much coming from the theater, like, even the models of movie theaters, how it was going to work, you know, was coming from the theater. So that sort of cross-pollination is, is really key. So what were the origins of this specific project? What made you decide to focus on Stella Adler? Well, um, it's it's that second book question. Okay. <laughs> you, you reach this sort of point where you've done the first book, and a lot of people in academia, it's, it's based on your dissertation, right? Sure. It's, and I'm sure you know this kind of feeling. <laughs> and um, I knew I, I wanted to do a second project on acting, um, and I wanted to get away from comedians. I thought I was going to get away from the masculinity focus, but it ended up I ended up going down that rabbit hole again because I feel method acting, whatever. Yeah, for you the can't lack of not bring term. it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so many sort of male centric actors in those, right? It's it's like uh, Brando and De Niro and things like that. Um, but I, I was interested in, in looking at acting methodologies and schools of acting, and I originally had a much more the larger ambitious project in mind where I was going to do all these different acting teachers, you know, like doing, um, uh, certainly Strasberg, uh, Adler, Sanford Meisner, Uta Hagen, and each chapter was going to talk about the methods and then analyze a, a certain, a certain sure. performance of one or their students. And I started down that path and I read a wonderful book by uh, Rosemary Malgway. I think that's how you say her name called an actress prepares, which is this feminist reassessment of all these acting teachers and their, and their methods. And I started to realize as I was reading that, that I needed to focus it. <laughs> and also I, I put in for a grant because I just really wanted to do archival research mm. And I realized uh, in Austin, Texas, all the Stella Adler papers were around. And I started to read more and more about Stella Adler. And it, Stella Adler's like a name people are aware of. Like you spend so much time in L.A. Like you probably hear you might have been at parties and heard I study at Stella Adler. Right. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, and but it's not really a name people know the history of. Um, so. I started to read a biography of hers and it started to dawn on me. She was the book. And I thought if I go down there and that archive has enough, she's going to be the lens of my book. She's going to be how I focus this. Um, and the reason for that is twofold. One is that you have this uh, history of acting where uh, a lot of people get uh, misidentified as being Lee Strasberg's students. And I opened a book on Brando being misidentified as that often, even though he was trained by Adler and very vocal about being trained by Adler. So you have this list of students she taught. That's a real practical thing, but also, and I will, I, I may be going on too long with this question, also kind of like what she represented. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's really important there. And in certain ways, your book kind of reminded me of Maya Smuckler's Liberating Hollywood, where it was like this mm -hmm. moment to be like, hey, we're going to reclaim this piece of history, which is really, 
you know, we don't give the, the, the women working in this industry enough credit at this moment in time. And especially, as you said, with Stella Adler, it's not like Brando was keeping it a secret. And some of those no. different pull quotes you're giving, it's like, you know, he's very upset with uh, Lee Strasberg. He's, he's like, no, no, no. I, you know, I was Stella's student. That guy can't take credit for what I'm doing. So, yeah, no, I, I saw it as kind of this very definitive kind of reclamation. And I, I thought that was really good uh, to kind hey. of have that focus there. And while writing it, I don't think because there has been in film studies with certain books being released now, like the one you just mentioned and um, Pink Slipped uh, that Judith Main, I think, um, uh, coming out. If I misidentified the author, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, with re reexamining women's labor in the history of film, I mean, that's certainly I don't think it really dawned on me that was what I was doing very late in the project oh, wow. and maybe that's maybe that's my you know typical male scholarship <laughs> yeah i i knew that was important i knew that that was a reason why she was kind of eclipsed this sort of phallocentric uh, narrative of acting um but it wasn't until writing that conclusion that I, I kind of faced it head on as as an issue because i i wanted to look at more of her as a thinker more of her as a um as an intellectual, like what is she actually saying than just what she represented? Um, but you're right. Um, it's like when I say what she represents, she actually represents historically the first figure to really forcibly stand up to Lee Strasberg. <laughs> in 1934, she is at the group theater with him. He's in head of the group theater, which is a precursor to the actor's studio. And this is when they start using Konstantin Stanislavski's and she's saying, you're doing it wrong because she had taken lessons with some of uh, his uh, Stanislavski's teachers um, at the American laboratory. Uh, so through a whole bunch of circumstances that are interesting, but I won't get into these details here. She ends up in Paris. She ends up being uh, trained and taking uh, lessons from Stanislavski himself for about five weeks. And she comes back. And she comes back to the group theater, Strasberg, the artistic director. She brings all these charts and says, you're doing it wrong. So when I say what she represents, like also historically, she is the person who, uh, in a way, initiates the split away from Strasberg. Okay. Like, so Strasberg is this primary sort of narrative of acting. Like in the 50s, there's all this press on him. But then you have all these people doing things that he's not doing, not this super psychological sort of introspective approach of the actor. You have her, Meisner, uh, uh, Robert Lewis, and the impetus of it. She's the one who like actually did it. So you're right. Like it is, there are so many things she represents, but also this actual historical moment became interesting to me too. So I just went, okay, she's the book. If I have enough down there, she's going to be the book. So you've you've started to touch on my next question, which is where I was going to try to differentiate between these three folks' approaches to method acting, which would be Stanislavski, Strasberg, and Adler. And my interpretation from reading your your book, this kind of layman's interpretation, is um, Stanislavski starts off with this kind of general idea of method acting where it is kind of psychological-based, and you try to find these bodily movements that you tie to different reasons and such as that. Um, but his ideas, like most, you know, kind of practitioners that we read, I always have to tell my students when we read Bazan or Eisenstein that it's difficult because these things are organic and they evolve over time. So sure. it feels like Strasberg like latched on to early Stanislavski, 
mm-hmm. and then the idea kept advancing and you know you get um Strasburg basically saying yeah pull from inside yourself and use that for the character where Stanislavski and Adler later on are basically saying, no, you look at the character and you try to use the text as the, the kind of basis for your psychology. You don't pull from yourself as much as become this kind of anthropologist or this kind of great people watcher. And that that became the split. Like you're, you know, Stan, um, Strasbourg inside yourself, Stanislavski and Adler like outside and, and just being perceptive. So have I summarized that pretty well? Or? That's, that's a great summary. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm glad but I can it, read. It, yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's it's complex, right? It's you know, it's uh, the actor studio itself. E- even under Strasberg, as it goes on, you start to see these other methodologies. You'll hear other things that feel more on the other side of the split. Um, but you're right. You know, early on, more summarizes Strasberg as as putting uh, Stanislavski more through a Freudian lens. Mm. Because Freud is real popular at that time and unblocking the actor he talks a lot about and freeing the actor up. But um, you're right. Like, this is very much the split. And the difference, too, is you're, you're also right in your assessment that Stanislavski is a practitioner. He experiments. He experiments through all his different studios. So what Strasberg got when he went to the American laboratory and studied with a, a guy named uh, 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 um was very much from what was like the first studio. It was very early sort of, of stuff. And, and uh, Stanislavski keeps developing. He keeps developing. And by the time uh, Adler is studying with him, it's what they call the method of physical action, the people who study his stuff. So you can see them as different points Stanislavski's sort of trajectory himself um, in that sort of continual sort of idea of of, of practitioner, right? Um, but you could also see, I would I'd make the argument in the book, and this is going along with something that um, Cynthia Barron, who's a wonderful uh, scholar on acting, and I want to just, I, I'll plug her book, which is Modern Acting. It's a really excellent book on like 1930s and 40s acting. Um, she makes the point, too, that a lot of what Adler was doing and the people who weren't Strasbourg are doing were continuing things that were being done in the 20s and 30s and was generally seen as modern acting, right? Heavy script analysis. Adler didn't invent that in America. People were doing that before. Um, so a lot of things that Adler does is coming from Stanislavski, but then you have these other sort of influences from this long history of theater, and then she has this whole background in theater. <laughs> that is, you know, what is that influence as well? But uh, but certainly in terms of Stanislavski, I'd say that's a very fair summary. Okay. Um, before I continue on, I did want to mention, I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but Bruce Dern was on Mark Maron's What the Fuck last week, and he's he's got some really great stories about the actor's studio and working with Strasbourg. So kind of reading your book alongside really of it, it was, it was pretty fascinating. Um, but what I wanted to kind of do... I had, to, I had to listen to that one. I love Dern. So yeah, yeah, no, he's... And, he, and he, I didn't realize he's got this... 
tradition with the different directors he works with of Dernisms where he gets like a pass where like they'll just be like we want you to like improvise a line like from like directors who don't normally allow that kind of thing from Tarantino and uh, like Payne and there's this moment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I knew as soon as he started talking about it I knew what line he was going to say that he improvised which was the moment where he gives Brad Pitt the kind of touch on the shoulder and he's like you you visited me today and, and that touched me and I was like yeah that does seem like it doesn't it almost seems too heartfelt for something for Tarantino to write. It does seem like something that comes out of the moment more and spontaneous and you can almost kind of see it on Brad Pitt's face when he touches yeah. it. But also, you know, spontaneous but also of the script, mm-hmm. you know, would this character actually appreciate this? You know, you have to do that analysis and say no, he will appreciate someone from the past, even if he doesn't fully remember him. <laughs> and it's only going to last a minute because then he's going to get kind of shitty about it again, where it's like, yeah, I'm not going to, yeah. I can't be overly sentimental because that's not the character, but like I'll allow myself this one moment. It's a crack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what I wanted to do now is kind of break down the, her method, her the, the way in which she kind of taught her actors. And the first chapter you talk about is this idea of doable actions and your case study mm-hmm. on Marlon Brando. So this idea of like chomping gum and how he eats. So can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the ways seeing writing this book was once I got into her archives and it was just, you know, copious amounts of, of stuff, you know, just classroom transcripts. And I just sat and listened to recordings of her talking for, you know, and I could still hear her voice in my head. And I I told people, luckily I like her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm very entertained. She's a very entertaining listen. Um, But the way that she organized her archives and organized her actual sequence of classes became how I organized the book. You know, the first three, uh, the first, the chapter two, three, and four were, based on her actual sequence of courses. So the first were techniques. And um, so I did that on what she was teaching in those classes, which were first-time actors in those classes. And she was calling them techniques. Sometimes they were called principles early on, but it was the same thing. So I wanted to try to find a performance, and I knew Brando was going to be central to this book, find a really iconic performance. So I did Stanley Kowalski. And we often view that performance as a game changer in the history of film performance. And it's it's interesting to ask why it's a game changer. Why does it feel different than other performances of the period? Um, why is it still an effective performance? I've taught that film and I've seen the effect it has on my students as they watch that performance. And there's still something there, even though it's, it's you know, from 1950, uh, 51. Um, but yeah, Adler is teaching in her technique class, um, as we said, much more of an action-based sort of external manner of performance. And, and the idea is, you're going to make these choices based on the text, but also based on for what would be seen as a modern play or a modern screenplay, which that was at the height of being modern at that time. That was such a controversial and a play that the shot like as a bolt of lightning on Broadway, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Um, the The idea was also sociological almost, watching people pulling together these sorts of movements and Brando's performance when you watch it 
when I watched it after looking at her lessons and technique and doable action, all I kept focusing on were what are his doable actions. <laughs> and what I mean by doable actions and what she means by it are what is he doing that feel like extensions of the character in this specific circumstance? It's not something, if we think in a Strasbourg sense, that he's mining his own psychology and moments from his life, because Brando would absolutely say, especially in that performance, he's not doing that. Sure. Um, he, he wanted to differentiate himself from Stanley Kowalski so much early on, because so many people thought that was him. Performance and wasn't it him. was it based on his dad? From what I remember, it's um I I think I once read that. I mean, what I read, Jen, I I didn't put that in the book. I think I once saw that somewhere. But I what from I read was he talked a lot about general observations of types of guys, very okay. muscular guys. Like he he said they're so muscular and and so don't seem to care what others think. So he made that mumbling sort of vocal decision. <laughs> um, what was interesting to me since I was doing a bit of a masculinity study was how much his characterization felt very aware of his sexual allure. Mm. Um, so, you know, he's doing it. It's often about presenting himself like a male peacock. I think sure. I the yeah, yeah. it's the shirts off and, um, uh, how that's positioned early in the film as as a way to um, rattle uh, rattle uh, uh, Vivian Lee, um, things like that were were really interesting to me, and it, it a lot of really interesting choices. Um, you know, like there's a scene between him and Kim Hunter, and it's all about using like a little saucer teacup and he puts his liquor into the saucer of, 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 of the teacup, and it's like this dainty little cup. And he's drinking hard liquor out of it, and it it's, it really speaks to, to to the dualism of that character, where he's incredibly dangerous. He's he's you know a, a, he's a sexual assaulter. He's, he's sure. enormously dangerous character, but there's this weakness that drives it too. You know when he breaks down and calls for Stella, and he's almost like a child when he calls for her. So it's about like the worst aspects of his of his personality are coming out of his weakness. Um, so there's a lot of kind of plays with that duality and its choices of gesture. And it's, it's, you can start to, you know, in the book, I, I almost try to catalog each of his little gestures as he's going through these. Yeah. It made me want to rewatch it. I haven't seen that movie in probably close to 10 years. I watched it a lot. Like in high school, I had like a Tennessee Williams kick and I had seen it two or three times. And then, you know, I, I remember, I think I watched it maybe five, 10 years ago and, it's it's just been a while because it was something I felt like I knew really well. But the way in which you described it and kind of analyzed it, I was like, man, there's so much more to this movie that, like, obviously I know the big moments, and you know, I, mm -hmm. I show the, I show both that and on the waterfront to my students when I try to explain how realism is this very historically contingent idea where it's like you know you watch brando now and it's like the students are like this was real acting like this is so kind of it's over the top in a certain way yeah um and yeah so like it's it's a performance i know but it's it's also one that you you kind of found a way to make strange just by kind of really micro analyzing these these tiny things like the teacup scene so i really appreciated that um next question is about uh, and you had kind of touched on this earlier, was about the Yiddish theater tradition and this kind of idea of typage. And what I really enjoyed about your book in this chapter was it made me rethink about, it made me rethink Brando's later career, 
which is mm-hmm. again this it's just kind of it becomes like this joke and this like what the fuck is he doing and everyone's kind of laughing at it and I mean you you look at like those documentaries like uh, Listen to Me Marlin which I think is really yeah. great and the one about the making of Doctor Moreau and it just seems like he's off the off the off the rails and doesn't know what he's doing and you kind I of briefly be- flirted with analyzing the Monroe performance and then I went no I'm not I'm gonna do Missouri <laughs> breaks <laughs> but but like you you kind of reclaim it and you, you you ground it so well in basically saying like I think the impetus for your analysis there is that he's written a is it a letter or signed a petition to try to get people to care about Yiddish theater in New York in like the 90s or something it's uh... You know, when you do this archival research, and one of the things that was such a thrill of doing this book was like a little bit of it on the first book, you know, some getting some industry publications, things like that. I don't think it dawned on me that I would have had to dive so heavily and think about something like Yiddish theater until I got down there. Because I was thinking she was going to be all Stanislavski all the time in her classes, and she wasn't. (laughs) There were these mentions consistently of her father and Jacob Adler and her family on the Yiddish theater. So that chapter became a revelation to me while writing it, that, okay, I was listening to all this going, I have to do a Yiddish theater chapter. (laughs) It just has to be in this book. And having to learn what that theater really meant to the history of acting and the history of theater and the history of drama, you know, when we think about 1930s actors that feel very modern, like a name that comes up to me is like Paul Mooney, like, uh, you know, uh, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang and Scarface and directly from the Yiddish theater. And he's the biggest breakthrough star from the Yiddish theater. He's he's the actor that Brando says He's the only actor that uh, I don't have the exact quote, but he he says essentially he's the only actor that I ever walked and watched from the wings. That he was so inspirational to me, huh. you know. So this idea that Yiddish theater would be very uh, key to this, and it was a very uh, popular dramatic theater. Like John Barrymore said uh, in the 1920s, when he's the height of popularity as a dramatic star, like if you want to see good drama, go to the Yiddish theater, and, you know. Uh, so this was this very influential sort of theater, and it bleeds very much over into the history of the group theater and then into what uh, Adler was about and Brando's you know, staying at Adler's house in the, in the 40s and speaking to her mother, which who was like the matriarch of the, of the Yiddish theater. So it was really there. So I started to uh, dip my toe into that. Like, I think there's a whole book to be written there, but I think you need to be able to read Yiddish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not the one to do that. But the, the idea that, you know, the Yiddish theater is an older theater than what we think of as realism, right? But it has this influence on realism. And as you point out, what we see as what they were saying was realism by like the late 40s, 50s doesn't feel that real to us. It has this theatricality to it, and this theatricality is something very innate to uh, Yiddish theater. Um, uh, her her father, Jacob Adler, uh, in in one of the books um, I've seen, actually compared to Brando, like his impact, his sort of performance style on on a Yiddish stage, and his empathy that he puts into characters, things like that. Um, but yeah, this type, this this question of typeage was was how I approached it because yeah, those later Brando roles um, in the seventies, interesting because 
you can look at one of his most iconic performances, which is The Godfather, as a very much of a typage sort of role. Like he's playing a type. It's very much a constructed type. It's um, in the Yiddish theater certainly had those sorts of types. You would do an instantly identifiable sort of type of character for the Yiddish audiences. Um, so it's interesting to look at some of his performances in that sense. And then, you know, I, I think in the book, the way I, I position it, and uh, it was it was interesting to try to write about one of, to me, one of the most problematic films in the history of acting, um, Last Last Tango in Paris, sure. um, uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, what is that performance at all? You know, it's 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 a type, but it's it's more of a realistic type. Um, what would that mean? He's playing, you know, with his own persona in that film. And he's flirting in terms of the production of that film more towards the psychological that we've seen. And as much as I can, you know, obviously if I'm taking sides in the great Strasberg's Adler debate, which I don't want to do, sure, but sure. obviously I wrote on Adler. <laughs> um, uh, it does it's seem like to... a more Strasbourg performance in there, if I'm reading it, right? And from the way yeah, you kind of describe I mean, it. It's, it's tough to say, right? I mean, it's tough to say the impact of, of probably the most powerful moment. And that movie has aged horribly. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Like, I keep reading, reading all these people this, you know, loving it in the 1970s. And I'm watching it going, oh, God, this movie has aged so badly. It's so, like, you know, offensive on so many levels. But the most powerful scene in it is when he breaks down over his wife's dead body. And that is a scene, if we are to believe histories of production, was based, I don't know if you could say it's a strict memory approach, which is very Strasbourg, or emotional memory, as he conflated the ideas. But it was based in some sort of psychological play, so much so, so that, you know, Brando uh, critiqued the director afterwards, almost as if, he pushed me too far, almost kind of idea. But it's undeniably a powerful scene if you watch it. It's it's raw emotion in that scene, so it's it's hard to completely dismiss, you know, what some of the some some of the perhaps potential uh, potential screen moments that may have came out of a more Strasbourg moment and approach. But I don't know uh, in in terms of the different typages. Um, you know, that was a tricky chapter to write because I, I don't think it's necessarily always clear what type you're watching, right? It's like, That's what I was going to ask. It, it is something like The Godfather can kind of veer between like this kind Absolutely. of realist performance and also something that's very caricatured. And, you know, that's I think one of the reasons why it's become such a subject for comedy is it is so I mean, Brando, Brando himself spoofs it. In the Brando freshman, plays yeah. It. Yeah, when you see uh, uh, the the freshman, right? Yeah. He's playing his part as a joke. So it's, uh, but it, it does it does speak to this that you know even though Brando in the fifties is held up very much as this realist sort of actor, and and at, during that time when you go back and look at the performances, I mean on the waterfront I would say still holds up as as a realist performance. There's these moments that really hold up. But, you know, then you have Tea House of the August Moon, which is like this offensive racial caricature or um, other sorts of performances that feel much more like he's playing with types, externalizing, wanting to look different, wanting to bury himself. It's not this ultra realist sort of performance. It's it's about changing the look of yourself, being something different. 
But you can have these very powerful moments in those sorts of performances, too. Um, and after I look at Missouri Breaks, which is just a performance that I, I, I wanted to write on simply because it's so out there. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't know the film. And when, you, when I was reading that section, I was like, man, I got to watch. This sounds oh, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it was one of those I decided to do. He, he had been off the screen for four years and he, he was returned. And it's often sort of set up as a film critically as the excesses of method acting right like it's this they he got on the set and arthur penn let him do whatever the hell he wants that's essentially what you're watching in this performance but it is fascinating i i, I try to make the argument that there is a through line to it there's something postmodern and sure. confrontational that he's doing in that performance uh, my next question is about Robert De Niro and when we start to get to the script analysis stage. Before I actually – we talk about it, um, I don't know if you saw it or not. I think I posted it on Facebook. Um, I was rewatching Casino last night, and there's this behind-the-scenes footage of Don Rickles <laughs> – giving robert de niro think, shit yeah. yeah where he's just like he's like what is this with the fumbling and the cods and all this other he's like he's like learn the fucking lines you got the nice you know <laughs> you got the trailer you got the money like there's no excuse for you to come out here and that need to like throw the whole production into disarray <laughs> um but what i what i appreciated about that chapter like i again i think i had this very different notion of de niro as an actor i didn't know a lot about him and sometimes it's weird. I was I was talking to a friend of mine about this where I find actors are completely inarticulate sometimes when discussing what they do. So I remember one of the first DVDs I was really excited to get was Analyze This because Robert De Niro's on the commentary track. Yeah. And I'm just like – and he starts to talk and it's just the most boring, trite conversation you've ever heard. And so I had this very different idea where he was just going to be like, yeah, it's all from inside, and I'm not really going to talk about it. And if I can talk about it, it's not going to be very interesting. And then reading your analysis of his script analysis of Taxi Driver, I was like, I really underestimated him. And I, I, he is so profoundly insightful on that script and, and just what he and Scorsese kind of are allowed to do with it. So, yeah. It, it's, it, it was it was eye-opening to me because I was – I spent a few months in Austin and that's and at the Harry Ransom Center where all the Adler papers are. So I'd just been doing Adler, Adler, Adler. And I thought, oh, well, the Nero's here. And at that time, I didn't think of him as like an Adler actor. Like I think of Brando as somebody that really got to know her. And, and, and at that time, I think the only interview I saw with him was a, a little dismissive of her. Um, maybe personality conflict wise. I mean, she's a wonderfully theatrical personality and, and he's not right. <laughs> um, but and later I found another interview that really was appreciative of her and the sort of, um, uh, the approach to script analysis. And this was something that Adler was very popular about. Like, these were enormously popular classes later in her career because no one else was doing it in this very thorough way that she was doing it. She just had an encyclopedic knowledge of, everything to do with the theater. So they'd look at a theater script and she could do every social context, everything. So when I, when I got, I was like, well, I'll just take a look at brand new. And I think I first looked at, um, uh, uh mean streets before I even looked at the other one because, uh, the, the taxi driver also raging bulls like this. I didn't look at it too. I didn't look at it. It's just this massive box of just rewrites of things sure. because he got evolving it while making that movie. Uh, so I looked at Mean Streets, and I started to look at the notes, 
after I had listened to all the script analysis stuff and Adler, and I was like, oh my Lord. I was like, he's doing complete Adler script analysis. <laughs> the breaking down, the, the present tense, everything that she was teaching. And I found, uh, I think in the chapter, I opened it on this little slip of paper from like the years when he was studying with her, where she gave him like a little speech and he broke it down into parts and wrote this whole analysis of the little speech. This must have been from like the early 60s. And you realize the, the capitalist thing where he's like, this yeah. is the capitalist. This is how he holds his head. Yeah, no, that was. Yeah, it's such a it was such such an insight. And then when you start to go into especially the taxi driver script and um, R. Colin Tate, who's who's writing on De Niro right now, um, he had done it as well. And he talks about the taxi driver script in an essay he wrote as almost like a triangular creative process to create this film. Like it's, it's of course, um, Paul Schrader, the screenwriter, Scorsese, and then uh, De Niro having as much freedom to create this character and having this sort of discussion with it. And as you start to look at all that marginalia, overcoming it's overpowering when you look at it. It's like so much. Um, you start to realize how much say he had in creating this very iconic portrayal of Travis Bickle. Um, and some of my favorite things about that movie, because, you know, it's it's a movie that was enormously debated and it will be debated again because sure. Joker's about to come out. <laughs> and that seems like an homage film to Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, right? Um, so it was enormously debated as this, uh, what we were determined today as this very toxic masculinity and violence sort of idea. You know, what I liked about the movie and kind of the deconstructive elements of the movie, I felt a lot was coming through through De Niro's really careful work of that screenplay. Because I, I, Schrader's screenplay is, is great, but like the actual work of what exactly is driving this character, a lot of that would seem to be work and in, in what I was seeing written and his responses to the characters and like Sybil Shepherd's character, his understanding of how to how that obsession was going to develop, like the, the arc of that. Yeah. But it was fascinating. It's so much work he put into that screenplay. That and the I remember your analysis of the ending where so much of the ambiguity I, I seem to recall comes from De Niro. Like that I think you had put the the Schrader script in there and it, it mm-hmm. kinda and it's not that it's completely unambiguous but it's like it's much more kind of fraught i can't remember what de niro wrote in the marginalia at the end but it was like that this is going it almost made it sound like it was cyclical like this will happen again or something along those lines yeah it was i it was such a wild process going through that script because i had rewatched the movie before reading the script i thought that would be important even though it's a strange chapter because i'm not analyzing the movie i'm analyzing script notes right sure. so it's like ultimately there was another stage and it's not what we see on the screen. i was more interested in this sort of acting writing process he was doing um and it was i was doing it at a time when you know sadly it was yet another shooting i think it was um a terrible shooting that happened in the movie theater during uh, the Amy Schumer movie. When oh, it came out. yeah, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. So it was, I was, that was in the news, and I was sitting here reading this after deconstructing Travis Bickle. So it was like, how is he approaching yeah, yeah. this? And what was impressive to me was his understanding of this character as based in 
some of the worst aspects of kind of the the history of masculine obsessions with violence and and you know he he seemed to be aware of it as it was going through the script so it gave me a different appreciation of the film at at that moment and the ending you're right that was a moment when i was reading the ending of the script because i was going through it took to get used to the handwriting and you're going through it and i read the ending and it was schrader's ending and when he he writes, I don't have the exact quote, and I, but it's something along the lines of, "What's the meaning of this? He was going to kill this, and he was going to do this, and all for what?" I remember the words "all for what" or, or "for what." Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And and that blew me away. I was I was thinking, how much did he have a say? And who knows, Oscar Scorsese in in that shot where you go to the eyes in the rearview mirror. You know the shot I'm talking about? Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, where he stares up, and there's, I think, is there a vamp on yeah. the soundtrack for a second? Where yeah. It's like, yeah, like a little sting? Where it's like, at any moment, this 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 could start again, you know? The the irony of the ending, which is very much in a Schrader script that, you know, he's being held up as some sort of vigilante hero, is undercut even further with this idea that, no, this, is, this isn't over. This is always under the surface of this. It's... Because that's a real important shot that that changes sure. that ending so much in that movie. So you start to wonder how much did De Niro say this when he got the script? How much did discussion happen? And with this tri- triangular relationship, uh, how much was you know Scorsese informed of this concern? It really puts the idea of the actor's process as key to what we see, especially in that film, because he he had a lot of freedom. Also, Raging Bull too, so much freedom in creating what we see on screen. Well, I want to pivot to kind of the exact opposite of that, which would be Mark Ruffalo's performance in a Marvel movie where you don't necessarily, you know, Marvel films aren't necessarily read or, or discussed as, as enabling a freedom of, of technique, right? They're kind of discussed as having this kind of showrunner mentality where they all have to look the same and they all have to mm-hmm. cohere to the certain story world. And what I really... Uh, appreciated was your kind of pivoting at the end towards this very different kind of production. We're not talking about prestige drama in, no. you know, Streetcar Named Desire or Last Tango in Paris or Taxi Driver. We're talking about a big Hollywood movie and a performance that is completely tied and inseparable from computer-generated imagery. So uh, can you kind of walk us through your, your analysis of Mark Ruffalo's The Hulk <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it was, it was, I knew, <laughs> I knew the first three chapters of this book were going to be based in her classes, right? She, she did technique and then I did the characterization class and then I had script analysis. So I was sitting there thinking like, what are these other two chapters going to be? And I thought it has to be, it can't just, because part of me was like, well, I have to write on Warren Beatty, Warren Beatty, 70s, Warren Beatty, but I couldn't, I ended up writing on uh, the Fonz, like that became the whole chapter, was Henry Winkler and the Fonz, which is yet another thing, like you're saying, with Ruffalo, right, where it's it's sitcom acting, it's like, we know the yeah. formula, sitcom acting, right, and um I can't watch. I'm just obsessed with his performance in Barry right now because obviously I had written on him on a book. It, on it acting, did help right? me. Like I mean, I, <laughs> I had never really thought much about him until I saw Barry, and I mean, I liked him in Arrested Development, but like, yeah, like reading your analysis, I don't mean to give him short shrift, but it was just like, I was like, wow, you know, like he, this, this he is about yeah, like yeah, him, I, give me, yeah. I give a lot more credit than uh, I ever well, gave he, him. He, and I'll, I'll I'll return to your Ruffalo question in a second, but um. 
I he studied at Yale with Adler and quite a few other big acting teachers of the period. And I keep trying to think of the amalgam of, of different people that drives this performance of, of that acting teacher, right? Like, I, I'm always thinking, where's a little bit of this? Like, he has sure. to be drawing on all these different acting teachers he worked with. But no, with uh, Ruffalo, um, I had worked on mocap uh, and on uh, Andy Serkis, I wrote on King Kong, like, years ago. And I wanted to to move this question of Adler and these questions that feel in a way almost very mid 20th century to where media is now. And then when I realized Ruffalo, who adores Stella Adler, if you watch his Inside the Actor Studio, he keeps launching into an impersonation of her, which is which is hard not to do when you talk about her. <laughs> she has a very theatrical way of speaking, as I said. But um so this this idea of of him and you know when Marvel movies, especially when Marvel movies started, one of their things that were was making news and you know it's hard to think about this now like what Robert Downey Jr. was, we're going to cast people you don't expect to see in these movies. So Ed uh, Ed Norton originally played the Hulk right in in that kind of Marvel universe and that that movie does belong to the universe. Um, so Ruffalo was an unconventional choice, and he's coming from this New York indie and stage sort of background, um, and coming very much uh, as an uh, the la- kind of uh, this group of last Adler actors who studied with her late in her career. Um, so this this sort of question of <laughs> what from that mid-century sort of instruction still exists when we watch a Marvel movie. Uh, and and I, I write on Age of Ultron, right, which is yeah. not necessarily the most <laughs> yeah, respected was... of the of the Avengers movies. Um, but at that time, it was the most complex depiction of the Hulk that we had thus far. Um, uh, was was a great question. Um, in with mocap, so much of that, and, and Sharon Marie Karnick writes on this in, in a wonderful study. So much of that is about essential actions, essential movements. Mm. Um, you know, so many people talk about motion capture as um, like a, a pixelated thing over the actor. And it's not that. It's actually taking just the movements and having it dictate a CGI puppet almost. Sure. Um, so this idea of, okay, this is a, a Adler is doing late career Stanislavski to an extent. It's action-based. <laughs> what does this mean yeah, when yeah. we move into this, this, this sort of technological revolution that is somehow trying to keep something real about the actor on screen, but it's still a digital image. What are we taking from when he's the Hulk? Hmm. You know, or Andy Serkis, will be taking when he's Gollum or whatever else. What are what's still existing of this performance, and and trying to realize like, okay, it's there is something very external to it. It's about the movements. It's about the gesture. It's about these sorts of things, and realizing that these uh, mid-century acting techniques are very much uh, and much older, even right. We're talking Stanislavski. Uh, are very much still applicable to everything we watch. It's still there to a sense. Like the, people are still somehow adapting it and and using it. And um, there's a great study, and I, met, I mentioned in the book by uh, Sharon Marie Karnick, where she at USC 
uh, was like using acting students and using late career Stanislavski, like, and then doing mocap with them and looking at their movements. And so it's, it's still very much a part of this discussion for types of acting that now are, are very much part of the 21st century cinema, you know, blockbuster cinema. And and part of defining how we look at masculinity, which is always you had kind of mentioned, I, I can't remember if it was before I turned the recorder on or after, but you know how you didn't necessarily expect so much to write about masculinity, but in any way you you are because you're writing about these kind of models of it, and so you know the Hulk and his depiction of rage and sure. Brando and his kind of you know peacocking and sexuality, but you end your book I think very thoughtfully with this this pivot out towards Adler's relationships with her actresses, which, you know, mm-hmm. obviously doesn't necessarily, you know, I, I get why it's the last chapter and why it's this kind of gesture where it is unrelated, but it, it is tied, right? It does kind of have this binding in terms of like, I think you do a really good job of explaining that while she didn't necessarily have as many high profile female protégés, it wasn't because of her own kind of shortcomings. It was just because of her demeanor. I think you had basically made the argument of where she was, she just was, you know, she, expected a lot from people and she didn't suffer fools gladly but that didn't mean that um she kind of had a double standard or anything like that no i i it, it came up quite a bit this idea in reading these remembrances of adler privileging the male after and i mm-hmm. felt well i have to had to address that full on and i stress in the book you know i haven't listened to all there's so much recording. I haven't, you know, and the recordings are wild, you know, especially your mid-century ones. Someone's turned on a tape recorder and they forget it's on. And and <laughs> and, and I've never been in an acting class. I'm a, but I'm a teacher, so I was really listening to her as a teacher, right? Like how she is a teacher. And nothing I heard felt like she was privileging one gender over the other in that in those classes and who knows maybe someone will do some very detailed study of all these but i never ran across that and uh, the point I, i try to make more in the conclusion is that the reason why there's more high profile method actors than uh actresses uh is is very cultural as well right sure. it's it's uh brand explodes on the scene uh, uh even marie saint's not right <laughs> it's like if, if you're talking after studio um so part of it is as as uh, as a figure she is associated with a lot of 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 men she's seen as the rival of lee strasberg she's the daughter of jacob adler early in her life she's the mentee of uh constant stanislavski uh the one time uh, she was once with uh um uh but yeah this this kind of concept that uh she's tied to these sort of male narratives in a lot of ways so i don't necessarily think she she had a gender bias in the classes even though you get these sort of remembrances of that like this, this is what what occurred and I think the best case that she didn't have one is, and I make this point in the conclusion, is when you talk about her actual legacy, like the people trust to continue her studios, her teaching, it's all these women. It's, you know, it's the women who are, who are the teachers and running these studios. And, um, and there are, you know, certainly Adler actresses that are really key, and you can see the influence of, of Adler as much as anything else. The the 
the gender sort of aspect of this book, I, I would, I, I hope comes across is more I'm focusing on the male actor because culturally speaking, when we think of the method actor, the Hollywood mythos of the method actor, it's often the brandos and the slouching. And if you look at like 1950s uh, writing about them, it's always the he. It's the he. Well, and if you think about method actresses, you think of Marilyn Monroe, and it's like she's not remembered for her acting. Like that's not a slight against Marilyn Monroe, but when you think it's it's that star image of the sexy woman with the dress blowing up, like that's despite all of her all of her attempts to be known as an actress, it wasn't for that. I, I was trying, you know, in, the, in that conclusion, I talk about um, who are, you know, and there's absolutely, a, you know, amazing actresses associated with uh, Stella Adler. Um, I would say, though, you know, in terms of the, these huge names like a Brando or De Niro, and I mentioned, okay, yeah, Meryl Streep, who, who studies yeah. at Yale with Robert Lewis. Um, but once again, it's not the Strasbourg sort of mumbling yeah. interior performance. We think of her as a very, like this actress who's amazing because she can change her. She's very real and important actress and amazing and, you know, genius, but it's all about, um, you know, the accents, who she can be. It was she more that fully, kind of typage. Yeah. Yeah. Fully inhabits these other sorts of parts. Um, so this sort of method masculinity, the, the, the different aspects of it that runs throughout my book, uh, that kind of dictates why I focused on the male actor in particular. Also, it was interesting to think about that, and this, it wasn't something I really talked about until the conclusion, you know, this this important woman as a mentor to all these sort of performances that came to typify a type of... A type of, of shift in the way people are looking at masculinity, supposedly from the mid-century onward, um, and and want to qualify, and it's something I, I try to have run through the book. Yeah, with you know, this is still a problematic narrative throughout this. It's it's white masculinity. It is it's still these sorts of narratives. There's still a even though these actors are doing this interesting, complex thing about it, it's still what is going to be the uh the powerful narrative of acting what are going to be still what hollywood sees as the bankable image of the star you know they might be challenging and pushing the boundaries but they're still doing it within very much a system and method actors in the 50s when people wrote about like a brando they act they write about them like they're so groundbreaking and they're going to destroy everything and it's like no, they're still working easily in this in the studio system. There's still it's still a marketable image, you know. James Dean is still a marketable image. It's not destroying the money apparatus behind cinema. I'm curious about that, and this is this isn't in your book. So if you don't feel like you can answer it, we can always go back and uh, I can scrub it. But you you touched on a question there that I had never really thought about, which is what are the legacy of these schools after? The, the you know what's Stella Adler's school now that Stella Adler isn't there? What's the relationship like between her estate? How does that work? Is it just people who were mentees of her? Can you speak to that at all? I can speak a little bit to it. Um, they're both very active schools uh, in New York and L.A. Um, I was very lucky uh, that Ellen Adler uh, gave all her archival stuff of her mother to the archive. 
Uh, and I was very, uh, very fortunate that Tom Oppenheim, who is a grandson, runs the New York School okay. and gave me permission to use all these archival materials to, to do this analysis. Um, so, so it's still like a family tradition. There's, then. Okay. Still, there's still a very, fa- you know, there is a, you know, writing this book, you know, I was very much aware that Adler has this legacy that continues. And the name Adler is associated with acting methodology, even though, you know, as a film scholar, I had to discover it and do this archival research. You know, anytime I mention this project to someone in theater, they know who Adler is. You know, they, they absolutely know who Adler is and how important she was. So that, that was really key. But um, her family is, is still very much involved in the, the studios um, and, uh, you know, um, major actors, anytime if you Google Adler plenty when it's this project. If you Google Adler, it's it's just pictures of her students and at whatever event in LA at, at, at that studio. And it's interesting because Adler herself was so theater focused and she writes about acting on the stage constantly, but late in her life she goes out to LA and she teaches out there from the eighties onwards. So um you know, there had to be some recognition that television and film was, <laughs> was you know, the legacy in that area is is really what's going to be, uh, in a sense, a lasting legacy, I think, you know, the, these performances and, and, and that continuing. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Scott Balsersack about his new book, Beyond Method. The next couple of weeks, we'll be having Suzanne Scott on to talk about her new book, Fake Geek Girls, and uh, I'll have a special guest in October to talk to me talk me through the Cochler trilogy uh, by Abbas Kirstrami. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, in the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or Spotify, and you can always find us on SoundCloud. You can also find me on Twitter at the Cinema Doctor. In the meantime, I'll see you at the movies. Mm-hmm.